A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, Happy New Year. There is no Canada Land today. I will be back with Shortcuts on Thursday. But you came here for a podcast. We happen to make lots of podcasts. Um, I'm going to play you today an episode from this season on The Imposter. Aliyah Pabani is doing something really remarkable. She is uh, taking a look at comedy, but she is doing it by becoming a comic. She is trying comedy and she is on a mission this season to actually get her act together, literally, and it will end with her doing a live performance of her sort of debut as a stand-up comedian. And as she goes through this process of training to be a comedian, she's also, as I said, studying comedy and looking at comedy and analyzing the politics of comedy and the culture of comedy in Canada. So this is a great way, and I think a pretty uh, courageous and daring way for Aaliyah to study comedy. And uh, turns out she's really funny. So here's the first episode from this season of The Imposter, the series, Aaliyah Tries Comedy. For the first 12 or so years of my life, my favorite movie was this 1968 comedy called The Party. It's about this Indian actor who gets invited to an elite Hollywood party by accident. He fumbles with the etiquette, and he ends up triggering a series of mishaps that begins with losing one of his shoes in what looks like an indoor moat, and ends with the lady of the house falling from the second floor into a pool of soap suds, along with a painted elephant and a bunch of hippies. I remember the first time I saw it. My brother, my dad, and I were in a hotel room near Bombay under fluorescent lights in the dead heat of summer, and we totally lost our minds. There's this one scene where the main character, Hrundivi Bakshi, comes across a macaw in this huge cage and he tries to feed it from a bowl that says Birdie Num Nums on it. Having the Birdie Num Nums. 
It's a skillful bit of physical comedy, and we would throw that phrase into our conversations to get a laugh for years after we first saw it. The phrase is so iconic that you can buy Birdie Num Num t-shirts or craft beer, and you could even go to a Birdie Num Num cafe if you're ever in Melbourne or London. Years later, I found out that Rundivi Bakshi is not even an Indian name, and he was played by Peter Sellers, who is a white actor, doing brownface. From Canada Land, this is The Imposter, and I'm Ali Pabani. When I eventually clued into the truth about Bakshi's character, it got me thinking about what it actually means to laugh. And I was curious to know why my dad decided to show it to us in the first place. Alia. Hello? Hi, how come you're phoning me from an unknown number? Because I'm calling you from Skype. From Skype? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, I've been thinking a lot about the party. Which party? The party, the the movie? Yeah. The movie party? Yeah. Do you Peter remember? Sellers. Yeah. Yeah. The first time I watched it, we were doing a, a trip out west with my friend. And we both of us were just killing ourselves laughing. And I was just totally convinced, like everybody else had seen the movie since, that um, Peter Sellers was actually a brown person. I didn't realize that he was actually a British actor. He did a good job. No, he did, he did a very good job portraying an Indian with the accent and stuff. And that um, if somebody did the same thing today, it would seem like they were um, really making fun. But at that time... I don't think it was done in that sense. Like you weren't offended when you watched it in the past? No, 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 not in the slightest. I was having fun. I was, I was really, really laughing. The thing that still st- uh, sticks in our mind is the birdie num num thing. Birdie num num, you know. Do you but think that the, the birdie num num scene is respectful though? Doesn't it make it seem like Peter Sellers' character is like a small child? Well, today, in today's context, it would be perceived as such. But at that time, it just, to me, it, it seemed realistic. There was a lot of factual things in there mixed with the stereotypes of the way that Indians would behave in a situation like that. What were the components that you felt were 
like stereotypes in which things were you like, oh, those really ring true? Uh, because we've been uh, colonized and made to believe that when you are in the presence of white people, that um, you had to stop everything and pay attention to them. Like when I was growing up, we had a, a shop in a small village. And there was an old lady, that older lady, that used to come with her white dog. And the dog would come in the back, uh, and I'd be in the back sleeping or whatever, hiding under the covers because I was scared of the dog. Because we, we uh, were not used to having dogs that would come into the house. The, the only dogs we had seen were the wild ones outside. Um, so, yeah, we had seen that my dad would stop doing everything and attend to the lady and try and be as polite as he could, trying to understand what she was saying uh, and, and accommodating her. So that, you know, fear uh, with respect that you have for a different class of people that were beyond uh, what we could, we could be um, was ingrained in us. So and it probably still is. So, uh, and you see that in that movie where he's uh, dressing up and he's trying to be proper, even when things are falling apart and stuff. And uh, when people are making fun of him, he's you know diverting the attention to the bird and, and what have you. It's interesting you read it that way though, because it's like to me one of the reasons why that character is funny is because he's Indian. Like, Peter Sellers has played, like, Inspector Clouseau and stuff before. And he's done the kind of, like, klutzy guy routine. To me, the fact that he's doing brown face and is an Indian guy adds another layer of, like, ridicule to his character. Maybe I wasn't as enlightened. Maybe I was distancing myself from uh, the Indians from India as well, and that's why I could laugh. thing is, when I watch that movie now, the pure, uncomplicated laughter is gone. I still find it kind of funny, but I just can't laugh with my own mouth. Like, now I'm thinking about whose vantage point I'm laughing from. Is the party making fun of the decadent Hollywood party Bakshi fumbles through, or is it making fun of Bakshi? The film is obviously making fun of Bakshi, but when I was a kid, I thought I was laughing at someone who was like me. When I watch it now, I see a white actor's badly rendered impersonation of an Indian for me to take shots at. The party fundamentally changed the way I feel about comedy and about laughter itself. Like, is there anything more degrading than a group of people laughing at you? Is there anything more empowering than getting a big laugh by making people see things your way? Is comedy ever not about power? (laughs) 
So if you're a comedian or if you've watched a lot of comedy, this probably sounds kind of obvious to you. But for me, it wasn't until kind of recently that I realized comedy could be weaponized. Like, if you make people laugh, you can say things they might otherwise have no interest in hearing. The first time I got on stage with that specific intention was about a year and a half ago. It was for a lecture series called Trampoline Hall, and the conceit is that people do a lecture in a bar about a topic that they're not experts in. And then the audience gets to ask questions. Mine was about the politics of laughter. Very warm round of applause, please, for Aliyah Babani. University, uh, I got really into this show Six Feet Under, which if, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's about a family who runs a funeral home. And I decided that I actually wanted to get into funeral studies as well, but I wanted to provide these like alternative corporate funeral retreat hybrids where people could go and do team building events to build morale about um, death. Um, so I remember I was in the car with my dad when I told him about my idea. And he was mostly nonplussed, um, but cautiously interested the way that he usually is when I tell him about new career ideas. Um, so then I asked him, um, do you mind if I do your funeral? And he said, sure, yeah, you could do that, but uh, I want to be cremated. And so I said, yeah, we could do that, um, but you know, like, where would you like me to scatter your ashes? And then he got really serious, and he looked me in the face and said, Alia, I want you to go to the park and I want you to throw my ashes on white people. <laughs> As it turns out, the original producer of The Imposter, Katie Jensen, was in the audience that night. And that's how I became host of this show. And even though I've hosted shows and done performances since then, there was something kind of dissonant in the experience of standing up there alone, trying to make people laugh with material that's so raw. The thing is, I'm the kind of person who thinks about power dynamics a lot. Like who's got it and how and why, etc. So I'm pretty good at recognizing when people's faces look like they're not really listening anymore. And here I was talking about the same things. And not only were people listening, they were lapping it up. It was powerful. It made me want to understand how it worked. But I also wanted to learn how to do it. I'm still not really sure which one of those things I want more. So this season, I'm learning how to become a comedian. And you're going to hear me in some pretty cringy scenarios. But you also might hear some breakthroughs. So whether you want me to succeed or fail, there's something for everyone. After the break, my first comedy class. On my way to class, I was desperately trying to come up with a list of stand-up comics that I liked because I knew that it would get asked. Mostly, I was thinking about whether I could say that I liked some Louis C.K. without mentioning that I stopped listening after the harassment allegations. And I'm glad I thought about it because that was the first question. The instructor was this guy, Jim, who had been doing comedy since the 70s. 
And during the comedy boom in the 80s, he'd made a middle-class income traveling across the country doing shows. He started the class with a video of his appearance on The Mike Bullard Show, where he was introduced as the comic with the highest jokes per minute. Hey, I, just, I just want you to like me. That's how it works here. I, uh, I, I need a ride home. That's how it works, all right? So, I drive the worst car. I drive a pony Hyundai. I drive these cars. It comes in a box, this car. It's just a gas barbecue with wheels, basically. This thing is just... In the crash test, the car broke down on the way to the wall, all right? I just pushed the car into the wall to make it road safe. The dummies refused to get in the car. That's how bad it is. The class was in a space that was dressed like a boardroom with an unplugged mic in the corner. We all took turns going up to the mic and introducing ourselves, and there were so many people of color in the class that every second intro had a joke about the fake name they use at Starbucks to lower the risk of failure. Now, Jim's a joke pragmatist. For him, a comedy set can be broken down into a series of calculations. He started off by compartmentalizing our end goal. At the end of seven weeks, you're going to perform five minutes of comedy. That means 100 words for every minute of the set, so 500 words. But you need to subtract 60 words for laughter, so 440. You should aim for a laugh every eight seconds. So in the time it took me to just tell you that, you should have laughed three times. Stand-up's about laughs per minute, not about humor. Humor's too literary. I found all of this kind of amusing at first, but then I felt comforted by the idea that there was an underlying structure to it that made writing jokes feel a bit more like making food. Jim got us going with some exercises to learn how to create a comedic premise. And that's when things got a little complicated. We were given a topic, police, and we were told to go around and list associations with that word, which was fine. And then we did it again, this time with the word overweight. Underweight? You said think of opposites. Okay, so uh, bulimic or what is it? Anorexic. Anorexic. It's not the necessarily extreme. true, though. Let's go for the extreme. <clears throat> it's not necessarily true. Doesn't matter. We're just listening. Can I list something else then? All right. <laughs> but put everybody put anorexic. Down. I don't really want that to be my contribution. Imagine you're in a workshop, sitting around a table, and one by one, everyone's throwing out words like extender seat belt. All-you-can-eat buffet, sweaty, hypertension, and Big Macs, like we're rattling off a list of groceries. Okay, I get that this is just an exercise, and in terms of punching up versus punching down, Jim thinks he's just getting us to punch him. Like, he's made several jokes about being overweight, but I don't feel any better about listing fat jokes than I do listing jokes about women being dumb. I don't want to list anything that, like, I feel complicated about the way most people think about right. being overweight. But and so I don't want to list anything that, for me, doesn't associate with that because I don't believe in it. Okay, that well, that's great after we've done all this, but right now you're blocking yourself. Okay, body mass index. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. After a couple more back and forths with Jim. Sounds like we're being mean, but you'll, you'll get this afterwards. But uh, All right, Aaliyah. The last one. This will be the last one. I got nothing. Wow. Not okay. inspired by the subject. Sorry. It was clear to me that this exercise was going to go ahead whether I wanted it to or not. I got tired. And eventually I gave in. So, I want you to write ten jokes with the premise line, write this line down across the top of your page. Top 10 signs you're an overweight cop. Aaliyah Pabani. Okay. 
your canine unit won't attack because you're sweating bacon grease. <laughs> Good. <laughs> your job went from high pressure to high blood pressure. I like that one. Very Sorry. good. Um, you breathe so loud that when you radio for backup, people think you're dying. <laughs> um, you're good cop until you find out the cafeteria ran out of fried chicken. Good. Um, you got asked to be in the beefcake calendar for July, and they had to give June 87 days so you could fit on the next page. Very good. Excellent. Uh, uh, you've got like five or six of them that are keepers, right? I spent the break sitting in a bathroom stall trying to figure out how to get my heart rate back to normal. The next day, Jim sent me an email thanking me for soldiering through the exercise. But the experience was still weighing on me, so I asked him to talk about it. I'm just showing you the process of two things coming together. You're not the only one that struggles with this because they get upset about the topic of overweight and and it's very politically incorrect to make fun of fat people, right? And so twofold, I'm trying to get everybody just not to not to let your opinions slip into this. Just be objective about it. Like okay, so if you were this is I'm just going to ask you. Sure. Is like when you come up with police and overweight, mm -hmm. that you're already constraining the types of jokes that can be made. The implication exactly. is that th the joke you're making about police is not about the dumb things they do as people in exactly. power. It's about them being fat. Yeah. So if I say top 10 signs, you're an overweight cop. And here's my first example. Your nightstick is a breadstick. So nightstick comes from the police list and breadstick comes from the overweight list. Okay. okay, I hear you that I'm just going to have to push back a little bit because I just... I think you're coming at this in too harsh a thing. Is like you're, you're judging the whole thing about comedy. That's the way it looks to me. I don't want it to look that way because I really do like a lot of comedy, but like What then... makes you laugh? What makes you laugh? My, there, what... I'm pushing back now. <laughs> what makes me laugh <laughs> is when someone takes a stereotype mm -hmm. and like destroys it, it like challenges sure. the audience like makes them start by being yeah. like hey i'm with you here's this thing you know what this thing is i know what you think this thing is this thing is not this thing mm -hmm. and you're gonna leave here in some way subtly changed by that experience yeah. of of me telling and this so everything you it. just said there is not funny and convincing me right so what do you do you have to do the research first of all start with the stereotype right? And list things about it and shatter it. Okay. But my thing is like, if you're not teaching people to shatter the stereotype, they could be just making jokes that affirm it. All I can say, Aaliyah, is that I think you're coming to this a little too serious. Like you've come to this, it's brand new to you, this stand-up thing. And I'm just, I have to show you the mechanics of it before you can bring, you have lots of good ideas and thoughts, but before you can make jokes about them, to win us over and still make a point about things, you need to know how the structure works, okay? And then another eight the seconds, thing is, we make them okay. laugh again. Mm -hmm. I hear what you're saying. I just think, like when you were watching comedy or watching jokes happen mm -hmm. in an audience where you suddenly perceive yourself to be on the outside, mm -hmm. there is like nothing more 
traumatic than that situation because it makes you feel as an right. audience member that the person on stage is rounding up their people by mm -hmm. saying like I'm going to tell jokes the people who get it who are like me will find it funny and the people who are not like me won't and being in that kind of space is just a reminder of like being outside of the culture and that's why I think mm -hmm. that I like put so much importance on this because I think that like one of the beautiful things about this craft is that if you walk this line, like mm -hmm. if you tread this dangerous line, you can really kind of transform the culture in the way mm -hmm. that you see. But if you go too far in one direction, then you end up affirming some of the worst aspects of the yeah, culture. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. That's fine. But um, don't forget, the audience is there just to have a good time, right? So if somebody's on stage talking about something and you don't get the reference, it doesn't mean you're being excluded. You just don't understand it, all right? And you also have probably a different um, sense of humor. So do you think that if I were to do this class differently, that what I would have to do was be open-minded to things that I don't find funny? Well, um, no. You just need to know what is the mechanism that makes something funny, okay? There is a point in the process where you have to just stand back and not judge anything, right? And then when it's time to write the jokes, then you get back in and you think about your premise. And so what's going to illustrate that? The thing is, is like, so I've been reading a lot about like theories of humor and psychology. Yeah. And so that might the, be your problem too. No, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's in line with like the method that you're proposing, which yes. is that you... Like, we all agree on this, and then the punchline is the thing that creates the incongruity, right? And that's what makes you laugh. But the thing mm -hmm. is, is even in this theory, it says that if, for you, other emotions around that punchline are more dominant, then your reaction won't be laughter. So it's less about, to me, like, PC political correctness mm -hmm. than the fact that, like, well, who you are in your experience. So it's like, if you were, like... You just can't cover everybody, Okay, you can't you can't be that way because then that takes the edge off it. There has to be some sort of edge sometimes. Okay. So what would you say I need so to do? So technically, you could have quit after the first class. This is not for me, right? Because you were coming to it sort of with a preconceived notion. I'm I am by the way getting that a lot now. When I first started teaching, people were excited to learn how this is done, and they've always wanted to do it. But now I'm getting people that I'm getting a lot of students now that are, uh, it's almost like really stand up as their topic and they want to rail at that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to be part of the mainstream, you have to have, you have to be able to joke about yourself. Okay. So you can't just be uptight about everything, you know, so. It's be, not about uptight. It. It's about trying to find what's funny for me. But, that, okay, yeah. so. Mm -hmm. If you're watching people set, if you're watching students sets, at what point will you say that's not funny, that's racist, or that's not funny, that's not for you to laugh about? And Oh, I do it all the time. But in the first class, there's so much to tell you. I just want you getting thinking in a funny mood. Right. And then we'd come back and say, okay, I can't say that, I can't say that, I can't say that. Um, but I get students that argue, no, I'm going to do it. You know, all right, the audience will tell you. That's really the main, that's the final judge, 
the audience is going to tell you if that's proper or not. I think that's what if I, I made a set that was about ending sexism by killing all men? It's not funny. It's just shocking. To you. Yeah. And by the way, the number one trigger of laughter is surprise. So that's not surprising me. It's shocking. And sometimes shocking does create uh, a laugh. But that's just, that's very, there's a lot of violence involved there of killing all men. Right? Do you not think that's wrong? So the next class, I did my first set. People are like, woo, the future is female. And I'm like, okay, but like, what's your method? Do you put them directly into the boiling water or do you prefer to sever their nervous system and then throw them in? Um, so I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm obviously not saying we should boil all men to death. Like, it takes way less water if you steam them, and then you can maintain more of the nutritional content. <laughs> okay, I know that didn't sound like anything that impressive, but I got huge laughs from the people, like the six people who were there. Like half of the people who were there thought it was funny. I, I think it worked. Okay, so the thing is, I don't really want to go for cheap laughs like that man-killing one. And I don't agree that you have to learn to tell fat jokes before you tell fascist jokes. But I accept that this is a craft and it takes a lot of work to get any good at it. And if I'm going to get anywhere, I'll have to let my defenses down so that I can learn. And I actually need to get good at this. Because the last episode of this season is going to be me on stage at Second City performing live comedy for a real audience. And it might be your last chance to see me before my Netflix special. I also know that there isn't just one way to become funny. The tradition of stand-up, of one person on stage telling you their point of view, giving you spicy takes and making fun of you, that's just one way to become a comedian. There's another way. Maybe even an opposite way, through improv. There's no mean-spiritedness in this. It's like a togetherness. It's a community. Like different types of people that like come together for the sake of making the scene work instead of like an alienated uh, person yelling <laughs> at drunks at a bar. <laughs> right? You get it? Yeah. Yeah. I also burped in the middle of that answer. <laughs> Did you hear that? Yeah, we'll turn it on. <laughs> we'll pitch it. On the next episode of the series... I go to improv school. That was the first episode of this season and the first time I've made myself this publicly vulnerable, maybe ever. The class I'm taking in this episode, it's a Second City level one, seven week stand-up class and Jim's one of the instructors. You can sign up for it and check out all the other types of classes they've got at secondcity.com TC. If you want to hear the rest of my Trampoline Hall lecture, you can find it on their podcast, which is hosted by the amazing Misha Globerman. If you're new to The Imposter, catch up on a whole season's worth of episodes at canadalandshow.com imp. This episode of The Imposter was produced by Ali Graham and I with production assistance from Kevin Sexton. Original music is by Nathan Burley. 
Follow us on Twitter at Imster, that's I-M-P-S-T-R, and you can follow me at Aliyah Pabani. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash CanadaLand, and if you like The Imposter, tell your people about it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.